everybody, and welcome to episode 302 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Brian Hogan. Hello, everyone. Dave Kimura. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. A quick shout out, the call for proposals for Ruby Remote Conf is open if you want to go and speak. Um, so this week, we had a recommendation from our very own, Dave, uh, to talk about web security. So, Dave, I'm going to let you kind of uh, give a little bit of an introduction here as far as um, where you're at and what you're up to. And, yeah, uh, and let us know where to start with this. Yeah, so I think that it would be good to just kind of explore the different types of security issues that you could come across when developing. Because, you know, I fall victim to this myself where I get a great idea for an application and I just start diving into it. And security almost becomes a afterthought where security really needs to be a uh, primary focus in the back of your head as you're developing, you know, how could something be potentially exploited? So I think that uh, that's one big part of it is during the actual development phase. But then also, once your application goes live, you have to worry about so many other different kinds of vulnerabilities, whether it's cross-site scripting or someone trying to hack your site or you got a distributed denial of service attack. So I think you know a great topic uh, to discuss is just kind of what is security with web application development? What does it look like in different situations? Maybe some companies who have had some recent issues, because I think security also kind of comes into play on um, your status, your uh, SLA, because I think if you have a vulnerability within your application, whether it's a actual employee uh, who has done something uh, malicious or unmalicious, but it's still posed a issue where you're not able to deliver the content or service that you have promised your clients. But then also have a look at different tools that we can use to mitigate such issues or how we can design our applications to mitigate some of these issues. So you talked about cross-site scripting and you've talked, you, you know, you mentioned some of these other things. One of the things that comes to mind is like SQL injection and stuff like that. And I, I just, you know, I, I can hear somebody saying this and, and, and so I want you to address it. And I'm sure Brian has thoughts on this too, but um, doesn't Rails handle a lot of that for you? Hey everybody, this is Charles Maxwood. I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about JS Remote Comp. Uh, we just picked speakers. Things are looking really good, and uh, we're really excited to cover a broad range of topics for JavaScript developers. So if you're looking to learn things about Node.js, about becoming a better developer, about deployment, about mobile development, and much more, and much more about JavaScript, then come check us out, jsremoteconf.com. Uh, you can also find it by going to devchat.tv slash conferences and then picking the conference you want. We have last year's recordings there. We have this year's uh, conference coming up. So make sure you get your ticket and we'll see you there. Doesn't Rails handle a lot of that for you? It does. And there are a lot of good conventions, but that doesn't mean that you can... Uh, just write code in Rails and you're secure. There's a lot of things that you can do to introduce cross-site scripting, uh, whether it's you wrote, you wrote some code that's vulnerable or you use a third-party library that's vulnerable. Uh, there's also the issue of, you know, like SQL injection, uh, 
if you follow the Rails standards on how to perform queries and stuff, then you are pretty much safe. But if you're not sanitizing your user inputs, then you do open up the risk of SQL injection, even though that Rails inherently following good conventions can uh, mitigate a lot of those issues. Well, there's a lot of questions that I have. Um, I, I, I want to start because because uh, the last thing you said was, was sanitizing user input. So I wanted to I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Where do you stand on um, sanitizing input from the users? Do you do you are you on the side of the of the argument that says we should uh, we should sanitize the user input and only store in our database the sanitized version, or do you stand on we're going to take what exact we're going to take exactly what the user gives us, but we'll sanitize it when we display it or when we bring it out or when we work with it? That's a tough question, and it, I, th I think it really is going to depend on what the actual end user's goal is. So. Um, I'm, I usually lean more towards to sanitize the input uh, on the display, uh, even if there could be some questionable content that gets stored in the database. But, you know, again, it really depends on what the actual application is, what fields I'm storing, and something like that. Long time ago, the reason I asked this question is long time ago, one of the, fir the first managers I ever had, um, she had, you know, she had been doing COBOL and stuff like that for for forty some years, you know, um, since since the very beginning of of the language. And and one of the rules that she had on her team um, was that we don't, as as software developers and as database administrators, we don't own the data; we're just holding it. So her her hard and fast rule over the years was, whatever the whatever the user gives you, you store it. Doesn't matter if it's junk or bogus, you store it. Because it's their property, you may want to look at what caused that. If you sanitize it, you lose it. You'll never be able to figure or never be able to recreate the thing that happened to go to the user. So that was her her argument. And when I was younger, I was always arguing, but it's easier if we just clean it up, you know, when we bring it in. Uh, and I think over the years, I've sort of come around to her way of thinking. But as always, question I love to ask uh, other software developers when it comes to security, because if you forget, right, if something gets in the database, you didn't, if you if you didn't filter it out, now you have to deal with it in multiple parts of your application, and if you forget, you you may have left yourself open. Yeah, I, I just want to chime in on this too, and then I, I kind of want to take us back to you know some basic concepts before we get too deep off into the weeds, um, but on this particular issue, see, I come in on the other side where it's like, look, sanitize it up front. And the reason is, is because um, I built the application to solve somebody's problem, but I have a responsibility to everybody who uses the website. And so in my situation, um, I'm just better off making sure that I disarm any uh, bombs or triggers that are put in in the first mm -hmm. place. And on top of that, um, I am basically providing you a service on my own terms. In other words, those terms include payment and they also in turn include terms of use. And so I'm going to set up those terms of use, you know, as much as I can so that they benefit you and, and provide you with what you're looking for. But at the same time, um, you know, terms of use saying I can sanitize your content um, also makes it a whole lot easier on me rather than having to worry about, oh, did I sanitize it here, 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 and here on the outputs? Yeah, it's it's sort of your sort of your you're 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 renting a, a you're renting an apartment in this apartment complex, and in order yep. for you to do that, there are some rules you got to follow. Um, you know, so you know that's that's a that's a good solid approach, I think. Yep. Yeah, we have the right to come in and do uh, mosquito abatement or you know 
drop a roach bomb or whatever. Yep. Um, so anyway, I want to go back because I, I think we're kind of getting into some of these specific attacks and I think it'd be helpful to talk about in general, what kinds of attacks people launch. I mean, you know, some of them seem to be aimed more at infrastructure like DDoS and some of them seem to be aimed more at data like SQL injection, but it seems like there are probably classifications of uh, security vulnerabilities or, uh, openings that we leave. And I'd kind of like to talk about those in general so we can get an idea of what we're looking at, and then we can talk about how to mitigate them. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think that in each step of the process, even up into the client usage of the software, there's different levels of security and different things that we need to be aware of. So during the application development, we really do need to keep an eye on our code vulnerability. And this includes 30 this also includes third-party plugins, you know, whether it's a JavaScript library or a gem that you're using. You know, I don't think I've ever used a gem or a JavaScript library that was completely uh, bug-free or uh, security with no issues. So I think that it's our responsibility if we are going to add a gem into our library that we do review the source code, even to some degree of uh, looking back at issues that have been posted for that uh, gym, if there's any open issues of security vulnerabilities that, you know, it's kind of your due diligence to look at. And then also picking up a book or reading about best practices with performing queries or uh, writing code, I think is also a great part of security simply because you're going to have um, s some lines of code that are just absolutely known vulnerable uh, because you're not sanitizing user input or you're opening up some other security issues. And uh, I think that overriding, you know, we need to take caution when overriding uh, certain kind of uh, conventions that Rails has already set in the configuration. You know, I think Rails 5 by default started introducing the force SSL. Um, each form has its own uh, authentic authenticity token. Mm -hmm. Um and the cross-site forgery that's uh, automatically baked into Rails. There are certain cases where you do want to override those, but you have to be careful to not make a blanket uh, across your entire application uh, to disable that security feature because then you do open yourself up for risks. And then when we get to the client side of things, you know, uh, clients putting in uh, JavaScript, you know, for cross-site scripting that could affect or um, impact other users just based on what they're doing. Um, and then you have the internet at large, bots or other things that could inadvertently create too much traffic on your website. So, you know, each, each step in the development process and even into production, we always had to keep security in mind. So even if you're starting out some dumb little project that you think nobody's ever going to use, nobody's ever going to touch, it's just kind of a sample project and you're you're sort of just learning about Rails 5 because you've been doing Rails 4 for years and years, you should be paying attention to security on that thing? Always. Now, if it's going to be internet-facing, then I think that you should do your due diligence to make sure that it's secure. You know, because, you know, part of it is we assume that, oh, this application, it's no big deal. 
it it does not have any sensitive data. But what we don't realize is that hackers out there, they're really smart. They're a lot smarter than me. And they're able to take even minute data and turn that into something that they can use to um, exploit someone, whether it's uh, exploit hack into someone's email or even do like a uh, one of those little phone Nigerian scams or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just about the data you're securing. It's about the application being used for other stuff, right? I mean, if it's if it can if a user can post stuff publicly, you know, if if they can use your application and post something that then shows up on a public a publicly accessible web page, well, it could be used for everything from you know dropping um, dropping passwords or dropping credit card numbers into a web page somewhere, or just a launch pad for uh, links to illegal activities and things like that. It's not just about the data; it's about your website being repurposed for stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, look at, um, you know, I know there's one site out there, Payspin, which I've used a few times to just, you know, post a code snippet or something before I mm -hmm. found out oh, yeah. about GitHub Gist. And if you look on there, there's just exploits of um, people getting doxxed or uh, personal information or leaked email addresses from hacked websites. You know, it's crazy. And I think it's their responsibility to um, sanitize that data, even if, or, you know, obfuscate or do whatever they need to to that data to where they're not participating in leaking that information, you know, or at least take it down as soon as it's been flagged or identified. Yeah, that's that's sort of the safe thing is there, there are, as I understand it, I could be wrong, but as I understand it, there are there are certain there are certain laws and stuff that you uh, you run a follow of if you start actively moderating the content of other people putting on your putting things on your website. So you just follow the DMCA stuff in most cases, because and my only experience with that is uh, at one time running a public code sharing website and having to deal with DMCA complaints. And that was what I was advised is don't monitor, just take them down when you hear about them. Uh, but again, that's, you know, talk to your lawyer. <laughs> So what tools do we have then for identifying where some of these things could be? Because it seems like, and, and I know, you know, I've, I've had conversations on other podcasts about this. Um, so I know some of them, um, but is there kind of a comprehensive list of the kinds of vulnerabilities that we're going to be dealing with on the web so that we can just mitigate them up front instead of dealing with them on the back end where it's like, oh, crap, people are stealing passwords out of my app. Yeah, and one of the gems that I use is called Breakman, and that's for a static code analysis. It's going to run through my application and generate a report that's going to tell me what vulnerabilities it was able to catch. And it's not going to be able to catch all vulnerabilities, but it will catch a lot of the different kind of code vulnerabilities that you have, whether it's SQL injection or uh, some just very bad practices along the way, like um, – uh, opening up file access to users and different stuff like that. So that's been a, a great tool in my tool belt that I use on every application that I deploy. You know, there it's a free application, but then they also do have a pro version, which I'm not too familiar with, but the free application has done very well. And there's absolutely no reason why you can't uh, bake that into your, um, your normal routine with developing. So, and I actually did a Drift and Ruby screencast on Breakman uh, not too long ago. So, you know, be sure to check that out if you want to learn more about Breakman. 
Another tool that I use quite a bit is uh, OWASP Zap, and that's the Z attack proxy. And the idea behind that is um, you basically set up a proxy, you point your browser to this proxy address, and a proxy is basically just going to be a uh, kind of like a man in the middle between uh, your browser and the application. And it's going to be able to pick up a lot of different type of cross-site scripting uh, issues or different kind of vulnerabilities that could come up. And that's another free tool that I use uh, quite a bit, uh, but not as often as Breakman. Yeah, we and then did an there's episode, one. Just, to, just so people know, if you want to get kind of an idea what Breakman's about, the episode's a little bit old, but we did talk to Justin Collins, who's the developer behind Breakman on Ruby Rogues a year or so ago. Sweet. Uh, another one that I've played around with but I haven't used too much is called Metasploit. And I think that one is a uh, Ruby-based application. But uh, I think that one kind of goes similar to OWASP. But I think Metasploit is a uh, automated tool where it just kind of uh, hammers the server and tries to find different kind of vulnerabilities. And I think OWASP has a similar tool in there as well. Metasploit's a really a really useful tool, um, not just for checking your app, but for testing your uh, your your actual server configuration and the network it's attached to. Um, I, I, I encourage everyone to learn how to use it, but I also encourage you to um, maybe give your 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 hosting provider a heads up that you're going to do some kinds of testing against the servers because their trust and safety folks might come in and say, hey. That's a violation of our trust, our terms of services. So, uh, it, yeah, it helps give them, it helps to give them a heads up if you're doing that kind of testing. <laughs> yeah, and uh, another uh, thing that I use quite a bit is uh, Cloudflare. You know, I think Cloudflare provides several different benefits, not only to security but also to uh, being your CDN for your static assets. But as far as the security goes, if you enable the Cloudflare proxy, then you and and inherently have a certain level of protection where your IP address of your host is being obfuscated. That's not to say someone couldn't reverse uh, and actually get that, but I think it does add at least one small layer of protection there, as well as some uh, other things that you're able to do within there. Some of the tools that they have for mitigating a DDoS uh, and stuff like that, I think is uh, very useful. So if you were going to build an app from scratch, would you just start out with Breakman and then just periodically use something like OWASP Zap or Metasploit to kind of check in on the security? Or are there other practices you would put into place? Uh, before I commit any code to the repository, I would always run Breakman on it. Um, there's ways that you can have Breakman running in the background. So anytime you change a file, it'll run and it'll uh, uh, you know scan those files for any kind of vulnerabilities. And that's uh, accomplished through Guard Breakman. And I'll post a link in the show notes for that. But uh, it's a great way to make sure that you're always running the Breakman as your files are changing, just so you don't accidentally introduce a vulnerability and then not find it until a actual exploit comes along. And just for clarity's sake, last time I looked at Breakman, it only worked on Rails. Is that still the case, or does it work on other Rack apps now? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, I primarily focus on Rails, so I haven't uh, looked into its other offerings. 
But another thing that really can help mitigate security is a, um, uh, a code review. So if you uh, do have the luxury of having multiple people working on your application, you know, as things are being developed and pushed up to your code repository to actually take the time, you know, I know meetings and stuff are killer for developers, but, you know, I think it's our responsibility to take the time to review one another's code, not to criticize it and stuff, but just to make sure that we are working towards a common goal of a uh, productive and secure application. So um, having your peers code review and then also having a, a small group of people that are actually uh, quality assurancing your application. You know, unit tests are only going to do so much and RSpec is only going to do so much to actually test a business logic. But a lot of times we don't build in uh, into our test cases vulnerability checks. And, you know, while you could do something like that, I think that's going to start increasing the amount of time your test cases will run and that would inherently um, slow productivity as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I'm also curious about zero day vulnerabilities. Um, you know, so I, I guess once they're discovered, they're not zero day anymore. But, uh, you know, as, as people discover things, I remember a while back, there was a big vulnerability in Rails that basically boiled down to the way that it parsed YAML into objects. And uh, so there was this, you know, a lot of people were concerned about it. And then, you know, eventually a patch came out for Rails and it all got fixed. But um, is there a way for people to stay on top of, um, you know, vulnerabilities in Ruby or Rails or Sinatra or whatever else they're using? Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about Freelance Remote Conf. I'm putting on a conference for people who want to go freelance or who are freelance and bringing in some of the experts from the Freelancer Show to talk to you about how to find clients, how to collect money, how to build your business, how to specialize, and much, much more. So if you're thinking about going freelance or you're already freelance and want to hear from the experts on how to go, become, or grow your freelancing business, then by all means, come check us out at freelanceremoteconf.com. Sinatra or whatever else they're using. Yeah, um, and zero-day attacks are very difficult because basically it's a exploit that's found like a day or two before um, the developer's awareness or their um, fix for the bug. So, you know, luckily and usually those things aren't long lived, but then you do have certain cases like the, um, the uh, crap, what was it called? It was a few years ago now, the heart, heart bleed. Yeah, heart bleed I think yeah. it was. Gosh, I feel like I'm getting old now. <laughs> Can't remember <laughs> things. Um, you know, you had that vulnerability and that caused a uh, huge scare, um, you know, across the NextSec world. And uh, there was fixes for it that were put out fairly quickly, but the adoption rate of those fixes were really slow. So I think to your point, it's our responsibility also to make sure that we are monitoring that um, 
the gems that we're using, the JavaScript libraries, our application version, uh, our framework version that we are keeping up to date, either through a mailing list or uh, something where we have visibility over the different gems and packages that we're using if a exploit has been found and the um, ways to mitigate that exploit. Yeah, we, we always we always run into this this conversation, right? This this is sort of this, the I think listeners might get tired of us hearing that, but if you use it in your application, you are ultimately responsible for it, right? You you've you've got to keep up with the versions, keep up with the uh, with any security stuff, like you're saying. But you're also you also got a whole stack that's running on. You you have you have your your OS, your operating system version, and you know, you have to walk that fine line between installing the latest version of the OS, um, keeping that up to date, and you know breaking your production environment. So it isn't always just a matter of hey, let's just let's just run the updates because the updates that might fix a security vulnerability, um, they also have they also may have some downsides. So it's it's all that it's all that balancing app, uh, balancing act. How do you how do you manage all of that? Uh, there. You know, I haven't used any of the services, but there are some services that will actually monitor uh, gems and it'll find if any vulnerabilities exist in them. And I think that's just through reported, uh, hey, this gem version that you're using is vulnerable and uh, you need to upgrade to at least this version. So that's one way to do it, but I think it is a very difficult because, I mean, once your application grows, you know, if it grows to a enterprise level, so you just have a huge code base, it's going to get more and more difficult. So um, one thing that you could do, and if you are a large enough company, you may consider doing something like this, is actually hire a third party. You know, you can get uh, third party security companies that will actually do the code review and they will uh, also do penetration tests on your applications. You know, I think those companies are fairly expensive, but if you are a large enough company or if you had the revenue generating, then it may be worth something to look into. What about, well, what about, you know, outside of, outside of Rails, like I was saying, you've got a database that you're probably connecting to. Well, we just had the MongoDB issue with the uh, the big security problem there where it was just open for everyone to just come in and do stuff and a lot of people lost data that way um, the, the the server that the OS are running on the web server that you're using that you're putting in front of it the load balance you're putting in front of it are, are there ways that that we can uh, that, that, that are that we can test those kinds of things too in, in an automated fashion that you're aware of um, I think I think Metasploit and OWASP will uh, do that to a degree. You know, they, you know, they will check uh, to make sure that certain things aren't accessible. But I think that as far as like your database being accessible, OWASP and Metasploit, I don't think uh, they would necessarily catch something like that. Um, they're just going to see the. Uh, really from the entry point that you give it, whether it's your application or a directory or something, I, I think that it's going to just start at that point. And I don't know if it would actually dig down deep into like the database level. So um, if you're using something like uh, AWS for your hosting, uh, you know, I've talked with some of the guys over there uh, about some of the networking side of things. And, you know, 
whatever ISP or host that you're going to use, leverage their knowledge as well on the best practices to configure the network, the database, uh, different kind of access policies and stuff between uh, your application, the database, and other services. Right. You don't want to be. You don't want to have like your 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 Postgres database and one on one network and and your uh, your application in another network and you're just sending the queries. You've you've authenticated everybody to your to your Rails application in a secure fashion. But then you're just you're just sending the queries over the open air, you know, unsecured uh, networks, right? Yeah, uh, you can actually have multiple uh, different subnets and networks, but you know, as long as they're kind of all localized, then you know it shouldn't be too big of a deal. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're just transporting over the internet, uh, making a round trip, yeah, that would definitely um, be a risk in my mind. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I bring that up because I've I just recently saw that, uh, but that was happening. There was a. Yeah, there was a cloud database provider that this application I was working on was using, and that that that's what was happening. Was like we we can literally see the queries and the results coming across here. That's, oh wow, that's not. You probably don't. You probably don't want to do that. It's like there was a secure way to to set it up. It just they didn't they didn't do it. They didn't know. And I, that's the thing that worries me about a lot of this is that a lot of it isn't like it's not developers being lazy. It's that there's so many components to this. It's very easy to say, well, my code is secure, uh, and when I'm I'm using the Rails defaults. Uh, because uh, because I, I got the SQL injection handled, and I, I never disabled the the uh, the sanitization of the HTML. Uh, I've got the cross site request forgery everywhere. Uh, I, I, I've I've taken all those steps, you know, and then all of a sudden, oh yeah, the, the connection that the app uses to the database servers on another on another platform is just wide open. <laughs> you didn't you didn't know. There's so many of those those facets. That's 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 kind of the what I'm what I find myself struggling with is that there's there's an awful lot to to know about with with when it comes to the security stuff. It's just a lot of just like everything else with the application development. The, the application development is getting more and more uh, complex, and there's more things you have to be aware of. You, you, it, it helps now. Uh, if you're an application developer, it helps now to have a little understanding of networking and, and the network stack and firewall rules and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at it a whole, you know, just a picture as a whole, it is overwhelming. I mean, there are just so many different aspects. You know, each step along the way, there are just so many different potential vulnerabilities you could open up um, or even just, uh, you know, setting up a new web application server. You run the risk of not locking down the ports that the uh, server is listening on, um, taking the necessary uh uh, security routes for managing the users. Make sure that you don't just allow um, a root access with the password that you're implementing any kind of SSH with uh, either port knocking or uh, also using uh, certificates to verify the identity and authorization. So, I mean, there's just so much that uh, goes into it that, you know, uh, I probably just know the tip of the iceberg of it, you know, because net. NetSec is definitely not my background, um, but mm -hmm. it's something that you know I am passionate about because I don't want to put out something on the internet just to have it exploited and then you know uh, taken advantage of. No. Yeah, a few a few other resources I wanted to mention were um, that I've used in the past are um, one is there's the Rail Security mailing list. And uh, it's not very active unless there's actually something to uh, 
you know, to, to talk about or to worry about. So, um, that, that's kind of an interesting one. Um, so I think the last post I saw on there was like, um, I'm trying to remember it was like in August or something of last year, but when there is something they post there. And so that's a good place to look. And then they're also looking at updating the OWASP, OWASP top 10, which is the top 10 vulnerabilities for websites. And so um, this year they should come out with a new list. And so that should be interesting to see as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Jinx. No. Um, <laughs> so I think another thing that we also have to consider that could open up the vulnerability is um, uh, something like what GitLab just experienced on their hosted environment where they had a employee accidentally do something, which resulted in the loss of production data uh, for several hours of production data. And it took their uh, some of their services down for a period of time. So I think that uh, whether it's a rate task that you have that you are doing to initially provision your environment, that you put the necessary checks that this is not getting ran in production. You know, because uh, I think rake DB drop uh, will basically destroy your database. And I don't know if you can run that in production or not, uh, if the environment's set to production. I don't know if there's any inherent safeguards. So we have to be careful that we're locking down rate tasks or other things that could be um, destroying production data. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So you mentioned the GitLab data loss uh, incident. And uh, if there's a link for like some postmortem or something, that would be cool to put in the show notes. Um, are, are there other incidences where people have actually, um, you know, you know, basically bad stuff happened. I mean, they're, they're kind of the infamous big ones like Adobe and stuff, but are there more recent ones in Ruby or Rails applications that, that we know about? I don't know of, uh, any recent Rails ones. Um, I know like, uh, the Yahoo hack and <laughs> all, of, all of that drama that came along yeah. with it. Uh, you know, and then Target and I think Home Depot as well. They had some issues, but, um, you know, I think a lot of it is, you know, vulnerabilities and security breaches are going to happen. I think, you know, it, it's not a matter of if it's going to happen. It's a matter of when it's going to happen. And I think how we respond to those and what kind of checks we have in place to be uh, identified when a breach is occurring or something like that you know, is also really important and just how the whole situation is handled. I think the transparency that GitLab had with their incident um, was very admirable. I mean, they basically had a live session streaming of some of the GitLab people trying to work through and fix the issue. You know, uh, I think any company would have been embarrassed by uh, that kind of approach, but their transparency and stuff just really gave me a lot of faith in their company that, look, you know, they are taking this serious, even though it was internally caused, uh, they are taking the issue very seriously. They're being very transparent about it. Uh, you know, I know you can't always do that with companies, especially if you're in a financial world, you can't necessarily uh, be as transparent just because the potential liability of um, further leaking information. But, you know, I think that um, what they did in their case, it worked and I, I think it worked really well. 
Yeah, I agree. Sure. Um, is there are there other appropriate responses? I mean, I I haven't looked to see what they did in particular, but you know, if you're if you're leaking data or something like that, I mean, should you shut your system down? Maybe move it to a new server. I remember having a security conversation a few years ago. I think it was with Patrick McKenzie, and and that was what he recommended. I mean, is that still kind of the the best practice, or is is there some other way to I don't know catch the people who are doing it or track down where the issue is? <laughs> uh, I'll leave that for the professionals to decide. Uh, <laughs> No, uh, it really depends on what kind of data is actually getting leaked. Um, you know, any data leak is bad. You know, hands down, not not a desirable thing. But I think it also matters what kind of industry you're in. You know, if you have credit cards and um, other financial data within your data set, then you may want to look at just putting a immediate halt uh, on all the uh, transactions just to make sure that you're not – um, leaking out, uh, you know, very personal data. But if you're running a site like Reddit or something where, you know, maybe there is a lot of uh, value in those kind of sites, but, you know, I think that if they had a leak of information or something, I don't know if it would be as catastrophic. Maybe usernames and passwords and email addresses just because of the potential vulnerability to other websites that they could cause. But um, I don't know if I would take all of Reddit down just because, you know, someone is uh, leaking some information. You know, I would just try to put mitigations in place um, for that. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you know, I'm, I kind of err, err, err on the side of being the overcautious. Okay. We're going to shut this down. We're going to isolate it. We're going to spin another instance up. And then and then we can kind of do the forensic work of trying to figure out how they got in and what they're doing. Yeah. Well, one thing that you can do to uh, try and stay secure is to uh, not treat your servers like pets. You know, I've seen that way too often. And I've been victim of it too. But um, your application servers specifically – they they're not pets. You should not give them a name. You should not um, hold them, let them into your house. They should just be very disposable cattle. And the idea behind that is uh, one for deploying new environments is going to be very quick if you're able to quickly uh, run some automated scripts uh, either through Ansible or whatever other uh, kind of automation software you're using to spin up new application servers, it's going to give you the benefit of um, being able to attach it to some kind of auto scale uh, group. So as your application increases in traffic, it's going to be able to increase the uh, load it can handle. But then it's also not going to allow for a lot of these residual files to just kind of stick around on your system for years and years, mm -hmm. you know, um, Whatever your policy is, if you uh, spin up new instances every week or every day or every release, uh, instead of doing you know an apt update, app upgrade, or whatever uh, Linux distro you're using, then you don't have to worry about that. You know you provision a new server; it's all up to date with all the security vulnerabilities. It has the latest code base, and now it's added into your load balancer pool. So. 
I think uh, we all fall into the habit of treating our computers or our servers like pets. You know, like my desktop, that is my pet. You know, that's my baby, one of my babies. So, you know, I do treat that one uh, and I maintain it and stuff. But my other servers and stuff that I have, uh, I have a golden image on each one of those that uh, is updated periodically. And that's the image I use if I need to spin up additional servers or if I make, um, you know, if I decide to just rotate everything. Yeah. Absolutely. There, yeah, I was, I if you if you hadn't if you hadn't mentioned that, I was gonna I was gonna chime in with that because that's what I've been doing le- recently is just, uh, and I do that as part of my deploy process. Like when I'm going to deploy a new version of the app, one of the things I do is I I I make sure that my entire deployment process works. Is is I'm, I spin up a new I use the scripts to spin up a new machine, provision it, and put the put the application out there, and once I'm once I'm sure that the application is working on that new machine, I can swap I swap out the old one. I take the old one out. It's going down. Well, that way I know that. <laughs> that way I know that in an emergency, like if I if I built if I spent the time to build this all up, right, and then nothing happens, uh, you know, no, nothing goes wrong, everything's just fine, uh, and I go six months without running the script to provision an entirely new environment. Well, and then I can't guarantee that it works. But if I've been doing it, if I've been running it frequently, just sort of like backups and restores, right? If you don't periodically test your backups and your restore process, you can't really feel confident that you can rely on it when something real bad happens. Yep. And I've I've had that happen where I've had a this this awesome script to go and provision a server and then when I actually need to go use it, there's some library that's out of date or something that's changed or the the API that I'm called that I'm calling against for the for the, my hosting provider has changed somehow and now I have to rewrite part of the script. You know, so, so doing going through that process periodically as part of regular deployment helps me identify those things as I go. Yeah. And if you are going to do something like that for every update, so anytime you want to deploy some new code, you could do something like that where you're basically provisioning all new servers with the latest code base and then expiring the old ones. Uh, But you have to also kind of, you know, because then that kind of introduces a performance issue where um, if you have to run bundle on a gem file that has thousands of gems to make sure that you're not... um, uh, causing unnecessary delays in spinning up the new instances, especially if you're trying to deliver a hotfix or something that mm-hmm. is uh, addressing a major security vulnerability. You want to get that thing out sooner than later. Sure. Um, so, you know, I think with something like that, you want to make sure that, uh, and this kind of running off topic, but you want to make sure that on production servers, you're not installing the RDoC file. So uh, in your GemRC, you have a line where you're basically uh, telling your bundle to not install any kind of docs because that can take quite a while in itself. Yeah. Um, if you have a local proxy or even if you just run a uh, – I think it's like a, a bundle install deployment to where it actually puts all the gems uh, installed into your vendor folder. Yeah. Then once you deploy it. I was yeah. gonna say that's that's how I keep deployments fast. Is I I've I've taken to just uh, it's just shrink wrapping the gems basically and just just putting the vendor cache. Yeah, and you can also use something like uh, I think it's Code Climate to uh, precompile all your assets uh, prior to even getting to that deployment stage, and that could also help reduce some of the downtime for each server that you're provisioning. Yep. 
Well, I'm going to take the opportunity. You talked a lot about deployment, cattle, not pets. And I heard a lot about that at, at DevOps RemoteCom. So I'm going to just kind of plug that for a second. If, you, if you're looking for information, there was a lot of talk about uh, Docker and about some of the other systems that you use to automate a lot of this stuff. And so if you're looking to dig into that, you really want to learn about it, um, the talks are available for that conference. Uh, you just buy an after-the-fact ticket for 100 bucks, and you're in. So is there anything else that we should be going into with the security? Any, any other aspects of this that we haven't talked about yet? How do you stop a DDoS attack? I'm kind of curious what, what you say about that. You just write it out? Use Cloudflare? Uh, you just pay the Bitcoins. I think that's the standard protocol, right? No, um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, uh, the Cloudflare, they do have a uh, button that you can press. Uh, are you under a DDoS attack or something like that? I have no idea what that button does. Uh, I really want to press it someday. So, um, you know, I guess it uh, probably adds some kind of authentication or, you know, that I'm not a robot kind of captcha. Uh, to the site, you know, it kind of injects that in there. That's what I would assume it does. So it re reduces the number of um, potential hits per second that you're getting. Um, but, you know, I really don't know too much about uh, the networking and uh, side of things to actually do some uh, lower level mitigation. I would just use something like Cloudflare uh, to mitigate the DDoS. Yep. Hey everybody, this is Charles Maxwood. I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about JS Remote Comp. Uh, we just picked speakers. Things are looking really good. And uh, we're really excited to cover a broad range of topics for JavaScript developers. So if you're looking to learn things about Node.js, about becoming a better developer, about deployment, about mobile development, and much more, and much more about JavaScript, then come check us out, jsremoteconf.com. Uh, you can also find it by going to devchat.tv slash conferences and then picking the conference you want. We have last year's recordings there. We have this year's uh, conference coming up. So make sure you get your ticket and we'll see you there. Yep. Right on. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Uh, Brian, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, I only have one pick. Uh, there's a website that I, I love to read. Uh, it's related to security. It's called uh, privacyrights.org. Uh, and they have a section called data breaches where they are just uh, they're collecting this large, massive list of uh, data, data breach, uh, data breaches around the country. And you can actually search for it. You can download the data as a CSV file, um, which is kind of fun. But you can see like state government agencies that have been that have been hacked and how they've been hacked, uh, corporations that have reported the, the hacks. And you can see what kinds of things have happened. It's good for consumers because you can find out, oh, yeah, it looks like the DMV here in our county just leaked a whole bunch of social security numbers. That's great. Uh, but but it's also it's also good if you're thinking about thinking about security of, you know, what kinds of things should I be thinking about? It kind of you can just kind of read through go, oh, these folks have been hacked uh, and they, people got away with security, social security numbers. Do I use social security numbers in my application? Why do I use social security numbers in my application? <laughs> um, but there's also an RSS feed that you can um, you can subscribe to to get new breaches on the list. I, 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 I love I love this resource a lot. Nice. Uh, Dave, what are your picks? Uh, 
I guess my pick is a screencast I did on uh, Adder Accessor, which is basically a way where you can encrypt individual attributes within your Rails application. And basically, so if your database is ever stolen, then you have the same level of protection that you do with a BigCrypt password on your actual attributes. So if you do have something like a social security number within your database and that database gets leaked, at least your socials are stored as a bcrypt and it's going to be much, uh, much, much more difficult to um, attack. And, you know, with bcrypt being a uh, fairly strong uh, encryptor, then it may just not be worth to actually try and um, get that data. So. All right. Um, I'm going to jump in here with a pick that is not related to this at all. Um, well, I'll, I'll pick one, and that is that we talked to a security expert on JavaScript Jabber a few weeks ago. Uh, his name is Kim Carter. I'll put a link to the episode with Kim Carter in the show notes. Um, but basically, we talked a lot about web uh, security and went into a lot of the stuff there as well. Um so if you're looking at that, you know, kind of from a little bit more front end kind of thing. And he, he recommended a lot of the same things that Dave mentioned. So um, definitely good stuff there. And then the other thing that I'm going to – what? Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry, uh, Charles. I was going to say it's not Adder Accessor. I was looking at some code when I was talking, and Adder Accessor was written right in front of my face. It's uh, Adder Encrypted. Oh, cool. Okay. <laughs> sorry about that. I typed it into the show notes, and I think, uh, yeah, I think we got it correct there. All right. Um, so the the other thing I'm going to pick, and this is a book that my business coach recommended to me yesterday, and I've read about half of it. And I the reason I didn't finish it because it's a short read was because there are videos associated with it. Um, it's called The Invisible Sales Machine by Ryan Dice, and uh, it's got a ton of great stuff in it. So if you're if you're looking at kind of building things up to, um, you know, to do sales or things like that. So for example, I'm, you know, I'm doing the conferences and stuff like that. Um, then, uh, definitely check it out. It is awesome. And check out the videos too, cause they are amazing. Um, and that's, that's all I really have to say about that. Um, so yeah, um, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Uh, thank you both for being here and, uh, we will be on next week. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Always a pleasure. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.